Okay, Genesis 3 should be relatively easy to find, even if you're new to the Bible, first book, third chapter. Thank you, Lord. Read with me, if you would, please. Another serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. For God knows on the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, was pleasant to the eyes, and desirable to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and hid his wife... I'm sorry, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And, and Adam had, and, <clears throat> excuse me, then the Lord God said to Adam, Oh, where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And then God said, Well, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree in which I commanded you that you shall not eat? And the man said, Well, the woman who you gave to me, well, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, Well, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And so the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are more cursed than, and than all of the cattle, and more than, than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree in which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake, and toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat of the herb of the field, and the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. Dust you are, and dust you will return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take Hold also then of the tree of life and eat it and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out and placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the, the way to the tree of life. Will you pray with me please? Lord God, in this time you have ordained for this, make this the most profound trip we've ever had in Genesis. I know that this particular story may be very familiar for many of us, but Lord, I pray that it would be deeper and more meaningful and more personal and more profound, that we would laugh and be drawn in, but we would also be, that we would just can't get our eyes off of this text and how it profoundly affects us. And God, I pray that today we will be aware more than ever of the enemy's wiles. I pray, Lord God, that you today more than ever, your Holy Spirit will grab us and change us and transform us and give us today 
today that hunger to go back to Eden, Lord. And I pray today, Lord, that you would just continue to instill within us the beauty of who you are, the beauty of what you've done, and the glory, Lord God, of the calling you've placed on each of our lives. So God, I just pray your word would burst open and come alive, be so full of color, and be so personal to each of us. Lord, you know where we're at. Address each one of us where we need to be addressed today. And we commit this time to you, Lord God, fill me to overflowing with your Holy Spirit. Immerse me in your Holy Spirit, God, that I would disappear and you would appear, Lord God, and that you would do through me that which I cannot humanly do, that you would minister and perform therapy to every one of us today. So, Lord, we commit this time to you. Have your way with it. Redeem every second. Jesus, be glorified. Bring salvation. Bring hope. Bring joy. Bring peace. Bring challenge. As you've ordained, we commit this time to you and ourselves as well. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say this morning as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the uh, word be your final response and from which you test all things. Now, it's the one drink I get before we start. Then I'll be busy. All right. Chapter 1, if you remember, we meet this character, his name is God, Elohim. In the plural tense, 32 times his name is mentioned. We see that he creates, Barach, makes something out of nothing. And as he does, he quotes and takes a look at everything, appraises it, and says it's good. But one thing when he makes heaven, doesn't make the claim that it's good yet. And then does this beautiful quest before us as he tells us, let us, God speaking in the plural, make man in our, plural, own image. And we are then pursuit of this Salamantamuth, these words in regards to this character, this nature, the shadow that God would cast, that man would fill. How is it that man in some way is the shadow of the living God? And that's where we're sort of put on the pursuit of it. By chapter 2, we get another board meeting, as that one was. That board meeting in this case is now God saying it's not good that man should be alone. As God now makes man, and I remind you, He makes him in the dust of the ground. And how can we forget poor <laughs> Poor Sean in last week as we, you know, we let him play the, the, the role of Adam. Um, better last week than this week, you know. And so, and, and, and again, the idea of him being made in a place, and I remind you again, what came first, man or this garden? Man. Man was verse 7. Garden was verse 8. Then this garden. That doesn't mean that there weren't plants and vegetation because we already knew that that was been a previous day of, of invention. However, there is this place, and it seems to be a place where there's dust because that's what man's made out of. In verse 7 of chapter 2, he makes man of that. And then, if you remember, starts to perform the beautiful act of creating these beautiful things. And I remind you, according to the text that tells us that he made every tree grow that was pleasant to the sight and good for food. Don't miss that because that's going to play into our text today. So man gets this idea, whoever you are, you give me life. You make beautiful things for me to enjoy. And then we read that the Lord God put him in that garden to tend to and to keep it. Avad and Shemar. The word for tend to or spend his energy, avad, ultimately will be the word for till that we'll see here. The word Shemar, to guard. And you go to guard from what? This place is beautiful. And then it's, of course, the very next verse, just as set us up for that. He says, now, every tree in this garden you can eat of but one. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. On the day that you eat of it, listen, on the day that you eat of it, mut tamut is it in the Hebrew. And it's called the double infinitive. It literally is the idea that you can't get more profoundly sure than this. That is die to die. You will die dying is the idea. On the day that you eat of it, you'll die dying. 
Now, what we have in essence in chapter 2 was the day that we lived. In chapter 3, what we have is the day that we died. And that's really what we're looking at here. Now, clearly, since Adam is going to live much more beyond this time, there are children to be had and all kinds of fun to be had with those children. Clearly, when God says, on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die, there must be some problem in my definition of death because my definition of death is, is obviously that Adam would have eaten of this thing. It was so poisonous and boom, he would have keeled over and he would have ceased to breathe. His heart would cease to function. His brain would cease having any activity and he would start to rot. And I realized that on the day that he ate of it, that didn't happen, which tells me that in God's sight, death is something more profound than that event is to us. And, I don't, and I'm not downplaying that event. That event's a horrible event. But for all of the pain that we suffer in that event, God is experiencing it here in chapter 3. And I realize why by the time we get through this. Now, as we dig into this text, and again, I remind you, the idea is he says, you shall surely die is the way we read it in our text. Mut tamut. And then at that point he says, now it's not good for man to be alone. And again we are brought to this beautiful apex of why man was made in God's image or how God, man was made in God's image. And that is that man was made with a capacity for companionship because that is who God is. He's the one with a capacity for companionship. Makes that void inside of us, that hole for companionship because he himself has that appetite for companionship and made man to be his companion. And I recognize, as God does that, my whole, this whole book becomes more profound. He made me with this vacancy for companionship because God Himself has a vacancy for companionship for which He created us to fill. And He makes this helper. Now, what is, what is Adam doing up to this point? He's exploring the wonders of this garden and he's partaking of it and enjoying it and guarding it. So he's exploring and protecting. That's the fundament of what he's doing. And then he says, all right, now let's give you a helper. What does the helper do? Explore and protect the garden with the man. That is what she was created for. And I find this interesting for what it's worth as we're about to dive into the text. That if God gave man the calling to explore, then he'd have to give him an appetite appropriate for such a thing. Now, before a man falls, we're going to simply call it what it is. Curiosity. Within the heart of a man is, and I'm not going to try to get broad general sexist, but I'm just going to tell you that God clearly puts it within us. He puts this appetite within us that's just curious. Now, on the better side of it all, it creates for a lot of humor. Why is it that men don't like to ask for directions? Why is it that men don't want to read directions when they get a bookshelf to put together? They'd rather explore and discover how to put it together than read how someone else told them how to do it. When you see someone, you know, it's like my wife and I are walking by someplace, we'll see a big hill, and my wife will be like, wow, glad I don't have to walk up over that hill. And my first thought is, I wonder what's on the other side of that. It's a natural appetite. Now, that's the good news of it. But again, if God put us on this planet to explore the wonders of Him and to partake of it and enjoy it, then there should be some natural appetite to do so. Or supernatural appetite, if you will. But let me tell you the other side of it, because now we're living in a fallen world. We're living in a post-three world. You sit next to a guy, across the table from him, and he tells you he's addicted to heroin. He tells you he's addicted to pornography, and he has since he's 11. And now he's in his 30s. You see him, and it's like, what part of you thinks, wow, how do you get a needle into a guy's arm to start heroin? Curiosity. 
and you realize all of these horribly addictive behaviors that you find men trapped in, how do you get them started? You just take a curiosity and you steer it awry. It's all you have to do. And you realize that that becomes a problem in all of this. Now we've got an unsaved helper mentality too, and we're going to see what plays into that as well here. Now, we get into this chapter. We already have the idea that on the day that you eat of it, mutamut, dying you shall surely die. You shall surely die, he tells us, on that day. I'm calling you to explore the wonders of this garden, to protect the wonders of this garden. From what? From this tree. Just don't eat it. That's all I'm asking. You are the guardian of this, this beautiful garden, and all you have to do is not eat this tree. That's all I'm asking you to do. Now, for what it's worth, I'd like you to consider the fact that Adam and Eve already knew good. When they're looking, when they have the opportunity to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they already had the knowledge of good. What they didn't have the knowledge of was evil. Now, for what it's worth, the word evil is the word ra'a. Can you say ra'a? That was good. Give me one more try on that. Ra'a. Nice. Now, the word... It isn't like God just arbitrarily looks at something and goes, ooh, that's evil. I don't like that chair. It's evil. Or I don't like, you know, whatever it is. I don't like your jacket. It's evil or whatever. God doesn't arbitrarily look at something and just not like it and call it evil. The word, remember, every word in Hebrew is based on a verb, based on an action. The idea of it is to cause harm, to create suffering. Everything that God calls evil is He calls it evil because it creates harm. It causes suffering. And God knows He doesn't. He loves you too much to want anything to harm you. Now, the idea is simple. God would call cancer evil because it destroys you. God would call addiction evil because it destroys you. And any threshold into cancer, any threshold into an addiction, God would call evil because God has no interest in that door. That door is evil. If beyond that door you're going to be addicted, that door is evil. So it was, how dare God call that evil? God says, God calls that evil because on the other side of that, what do you see on the other side of that? You see people beating each other up. You see people hating each other. You see people that were friends no longer talking to each other. You see people addicted and now hanging out by dumpsters looking for a side of a something they can find in there to eat. And God says, that's evil. And He says, there is a tree here in the middle of this garden somewhere and I just don't want you to eat it. Now you can, everything else is good, this is good and evil. Everything else is good, this is good and evil. You'll know when you taste of this. And I want to keep you from it. But I also know it's my responsibility to give you a choice. Now, chapter 3, verse 1. The serpent was more cunning. Now, for what it's worth, the word rind, the word for cunning literally is, again, from a verb, to make smooth. In other words... The serpent was more smooth than anyone else. And I think he's sort of a smooth operator. I find it interesting. Notice what it says, and don't miss this. We want to look at it again as if we've never looked at this text. We only have our last two chapters as foundation for this. And it says, The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field. It does not say that the serpent was more cunning than man. Though people really want to give this guy an awful lot of PR, what's very evident is that he was not more cunning than man, but he still knew how to trick him. But the Lord God says, no, notice, and it's very important here, which the Lord God had made. The serpent is a created being, and the Lord God made him. And notice it says, and he says to the woman, now, we're going to learn a handful of tactics. I challenge you to write it down. The new kind of bulletin, which, by the way, fantastically done, gives you all kinds of room for notes and theory. But I'd like you to kind of write down what these tactics are because I guarantee you every one of them is going to be tossed at you. 
Now, this serpent, for what it's worth, um, we're going to learn a lot throughout Scripture about serpents. Um, we'll learn about regards to the serpent that Moses throws down. He throws down his stick, his staff. It becomes a serpent. has to grab it by the tail. It becomes a stick again. The next time you see a serpent, it's on a stick in Numbers. Uh, Numbers 21, where people have to look at it to be saved. is the, the, the very symbol of their sin hangs on it. Jesus himself will refer to that for what it's worth in John chapter 3, verse 14, when he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent on the stick, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And ultimately, we we know who this guy is because in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, it says, The serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. Also said in Revelation 20, verse 2. So I know who this guy is. And I'm again, but then I have the benefit of the, the, the rest of the text we've yet to read. All I know here is that there's this thing. Now, people go, that's a bit fairy taleish. There's a talking animal here. And you're going, well, you're only saying that because you don't talk to animals and animals don't talk to you. We're thankful that that's the case today. But in this particular country, I'm not really sure. But um, there's an awful lot of real closeness between people and their animals. Here, there's an animal that talks and it's there. Now, notice for what it's worth, the animal never talks to the man. Did you notice that? There will be no conversation. And by the way, for what it's worth, notice in this, in the end of verse 6, it says that she gave to her husband with her, and he ate. That tells me he's next door. So there's the woman, there's the man, and the serpent's talking to the woman, and never speaks to the man, and the man never interjects either. So he's sort of happy to acquiesce at this moment, not interjecting, because in five verses, the entire world changes. In five verses. And man sits idly by, and his job was to protect his first mission at protecting, and he fails. Now, verse 1, the, now again, what is God called as he makes this beast, or this thing now, this serpent? What is he called here in verse 1? Lord God. Did you see that? And I remind you, up through verse 3 of, of chapter 2, he, God was just called God because, again, He's just Creator as we sort of see Him in regards to creation. But starting in verse 4 of chapter 2, now He's Lord God because that is His relationship with His creation, not just His ability over creation. He's Creator up to verse 3 of chapter 2, but then it's like this is how He interplays with man. He interplays with man by being His Lord. Are you with me on that? He's God over creation, Lord over man, because man has a will. Now it says here that the Lord God made this particular creature that that's dealing with this woman, and he speaks. Now notice the first tactic, and I, it's so subtle. Here's his statement to the woman. Has God indeed said? Did you get that? Did you notice it? His first tactic is to remove the Lord aspect in his conversation with you. He doesn't, nowhere in this text will the enemy ever call, will the serpent ever call God Lord. And, it's, and understand it's a really big deal. Now, it seems like so subtle here, but it's a really big thing because there's a God, if we don't make Him Lord, He has no relationship with us. 
And He can be the great watchmaker that created everything, lets everything kind of handle. It's all in your own hands now. Follow your heart. You're the master of your own destiny. Make it all happen. Create your religion. Do your cool thing. Maybe at the end of it all, this God will review it and you'll pass the test. But He has no real relationship with the people. And the enemy loves to play that game with you because if he can disconnect you from a relationship with God, well then your whole action set and series will be totally governed under a different precipice. Think about it. I mean, if I can try to make it look like, look, God's really not the Lord to you. He's no relationship with you. Then go and do what you want. What difference does it make? And the end of it all, maybe in the last round, maybe in the last period, maybe in the last session, in the last two minutes, you can really do well so that by the end of the game, you wind up winning before Him. He's not really Lord. If you don't really have this relationship, and He's really not your boss, how dare He be your boss anyways? But of course, apparently, by Isaiah 14, we'll learn that's the problem that the enemy had with God, was Him being the Lord. Oh, God. And you know, you won't offend most people. Around here, you might offend a few if someone sneezes and you say, God bless you. And they'll be like, well, as long as I can pick my own God. But the moment you say, Jesus bless you, you start sending people off the handle. Let me define which God I'm speaking about here. How dare you pick my God? I haven't. I've just picked mine. How dare you be upset with the fact that I'm asking Him to bless you? How ironic. As far as I'm concerned, you can have everything else that's called a God curse me. As long as Jesus blesses me, I'm good. And the enemy starts with this. As God said, you shall not eat of every tree in the garden. Ooh, tactic number two. He's testing how firsthand your knowledge is of God's Word. So what exactly What exactly did God say? I mean, did He say, you can't eat from all of these trees? Now, it's interesting, because there is a product of all of this, and it's part of His third tactic. All three tactics will be borne out here. But the whole idea of it is is that he's going to get me to focus on the forbidden thing. The ultimate... So that's our tactic three. Is get me to focus on the forbidden thing. The effect of all of this is that he has now got me to dialogue with a liar. Think about it. He's got me to dialogue with him. Now, it's interesting. When Jesus actually speaks to the enemy... And we know this in a temptation, for what it's worth, think about it, in a wilderness. He tries the same tactic, but now hear me out. The Word of God is intended to shut down your conversation with the enemy, not further it. When the enemy started moving in a direction, Jesus says, this is what's written. It's done. We're done with the conversation. The enemy has to try a new conversation to engage in it. What the enemy wants you to do is to engage in a conversation with him because if he can engage in a conversation with you, then he can dance you over to the lie that he's trying to get you to. The Word of God is intended to shut down dialogue with the enemy, not engage him. The enemy is the one who's trying to engage you. You're going, that door is closed. God called that door evil. I'm not going to focus on that door. But the enemy is like, well, wait a minute. But And this is how it works. Look at how God's the party pooper. Think about it. Didn't he say, you can do, you can't have any fun. I mean, if you really follow him, what's going to be fun for you? Because all the fun is in that tree. Now, ironic, think about this. People that will talk to you and say, you listen to Christian music? Isn't that all about one thing? I wish it was all about God. 
Everything that's called Christian music. I've listened to some Christian music that's the most unchristian, anti-biblical stuff. And I'm like, what in the world? Marketed as, I'm like, this is really confusing. I mean, at least something that's like, we're going to try to paint what we think Satan looks like. At least you kind of know that's going to lie to you. I mean, the other stuff, you're like, what in the world's this? But, and they're like, yeah, you know what? Your music is so contrite and it's so limited. And like, yeah, your music's really explorative. I mean, this one, I'm going to get jiggy with you. I'm going to get squishy with you. Let's all get naked. I mean, wow, that's all so many different subject matters. So, okay, so you've discovered 6,000 ways to say you guys want to be physically together for a small period of time to use each other. Wow, that's brilliant. You've, you've invented every metaphor possible. Oh, you'll come up with others, and I'm sure of that. But isn't it amazing how your creativity really also focuses around the same tree? And then like, oh, Christianity, that's so confining. And isn't that what the enemy said to her? He said, wow, this whole follow God thing, look at how confining that is. Did God say you couldn't have every tree? He gave us the whole garden to explore. If it was one tree, exactly how much exploring do you get? Let's look at it from this angle. Oh, let's look at it from this angle. Oh, let's wait till the sun rises. It'll look better on this side. Wow, now that the sun's over here, look at this side. It's dark over on this side. I mean, think about how boring that was. I mean, two days in it, when you're like, yeah, we kind of got, wow, look at, there's a new root down there. That's really exciting. I mean, and that's the way the enemy wants us to believe. When you sit there and you talk to someone and they're like, look, I've been in this marriage. I feel like I'm getting suffocated because all I can focus on is being free. And all of a sudden, this weird marketed freedom is exactly what the enemy is talking about here. But he's got you dialoguing. And the moment he gets you to dialogue, he's going to control the conversation. There's no time. No matter how brilliant you are, if you're smart enough, what you'll do is you'll say, look at, I mean, have you ever talked to somebody and you just know by the end of this conversation, you're just going to lose? It doesn't matter what you say. There's just sometimes when there's certain people that are in certain moods or whatever, the best thing you can do is be on another island by the time you then interface with them in conversation because you just know by the time you're done, that person's just, they're going to they're gonna find something to be offended by or what. You know, just, we all, maybe we all have it at times. The issue is, is that sooner or later you just kind of know the best thing we can do at this moment is to keep our conversation as, as quick and as clean as possible. Thank you very much. You look great. These are great. God bless you. I'm out. I mean, because I just don't want to be able to give you any more fodder to create some form of offense or whatever. I recognize in this that when you're trying to, when the, the enemy tries to dialogue with you, the idea of it is he's kind of saying, can I open this door and can we talk? And you're like, no. And that's the end of it. Well, that's rude. Not for this guy. And so with this, here's his tactics. Has God said, God, wait a minute. Let's just clarify from the beginning. This isn't God we're speaking with, first of all. This is the Lord God. The Lord God. Because it was the Lord God who said that in chapter 2. This is the Lord God who said that. He's my Lord. And I'm not going to forget that. Now, the woman then speaks to the serpent in verse 2. Now he's got her engaging in conversation. We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. She's not lying. But of the, tr- the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden. Now notice the focus is on the fruit of it, not just the tree. But there's a focus on the fruit, the forbidden thing here. God has said, and notice she responds with God, not the Lord God. He's already got her. He's already danced her into that. You shall not eat of it, lest nor you shall you touch it, lest you die. And I think, oh, I can see the enemy going, ooh, we've got someone with this. 
And the reason is because in the original conversation with the Lord in Adam, which, by the way, he has with Adam before Eve was made. Note that. He says, just don't eat it and you won't die. That's it simple. There's no touching. Somewhere down the line now, I have to believe that Eve has secondhand information. Well, we don't read that. Well, Eve wasn't alive nor created when God spoke that in the first case. Somewhere down the line, Eve had to get that information. I'm under the impression she got it from her husband, and I can see the conversation. I just want you to know that tree over there, don't eat of it, and you won't, and you won't die. And she's like, well, but can I touch it? No, no, no. I have kids. That's how I know that those conversations happen. I'm like, why would you want to touch it? Don't touch it either. God just says, don't touch it. You can't eat what you don't touch. And I could just see Ruthie going, ah, 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 ah. I know my kids. And, and one of the things we say is a heart that's to get near sin is a heart to sin. The bottom line, you know, the whole idea of it is if you can, you're not going to get burned if you're not near fire or things that burn. I mean, you know, you're not going to fall off the cliff if you're not near it. And I'm like, well, I know that falling off the cliff's bad, but how close to the edge of the cliff can I get? Why would you want to get to the end of the cliff if you know that's what's going to happen there? And every parent goes, Amen. I know that's the way. It's built into our hearts now because of this. Because the enemy says, Hey, God, not Lord God, but God, keeping it from you, aren't you? Don't you feel limited? Come on. How dare God tell you you can't have that lifestyle? How dare God tell you you can't go and do that? How dare God tell you? He's the one who grew, He invented pot. Have you heard those arguments? Come on, it's natural. Funny, guess what? So is getting bit by a snake. It's natural. I could roll around in a bunch of king cobras. I don't have to tell them to bite me. It's natural for them to bite me. Hey, if that's cool with you, go ahead and be natural. Don't put on any clothes. Roll around in a bunch of scorpions. Power to you. It's all natural. While you're at it, why don't you go and why don't you just grab a bunch of poison oak and poison ivy and rub it all over you? It's natural. Why did God grow that? We live in a fallen world. It's a constant reminder that there are things not to touch anymore. Stinging nettles. Thank you very much, Lord. Well, the Lord didn't invent that. That's the result of the fall. And I start to wonder what these things would be like before the fall. Classic example for me, if there's one thing that could govern without the Lord's command, one thing that could govern where I would live and wouldn't is mosquitoes or the lack thereof. I don't know why it is. Mosquitoes are just, they're one of my, just, they're my bane. First of all, I think because I am like a buffet line to them. I don't know why. I mean, and I always wind up next to someone that's like, that's funny. I never get bit by them. And that makes me feel a lot better. Thank you very much. On the other hand, it's sort of like they're calling their friends. Man, there's Mr. Chubbo over here and he just got sweet blood or whatever. Get your friends over. Party tonight. And we've been to places like the Kikaka Islands. I mean, I should have known by the name of it, you know, in Central America. And it's like the worst epidemic of mosquitoes in 10 years and a decade. And we go there to, to have a relaxing day. Well, there was no relaxing for anyone in that because the mosquitoes were exhausted from sucking the blood out of my body. I looked like a leper by the time I was done. Anyways, and I think, wonder what they would be like before that point. I mean, obviously, they weren't going to be stinging and sucking your blood before the fall. They didn't make that, you know, that wonderful sound. For what it's worth, ladies, only the women make the noise. Did you know that? You know that? 
And in the middle of the night when you're laying on a mosquito you know, net somewhere in like Tanzania, and you know they may have malaria, that's a really sweet thought because you know one little mosquito that just wants to suck your blood, wants to kill you, and you're just kind of laying there. And I'm not one of those tragic, dramatic, I'm just laying there just trying to sleep. And inevitably, the loudest mouth mosquito that ever existed, no, by the middle of the night, you're just swatting anything. You don't care. And then you're kicking up your mosquito net to let them in. So, you know, what, what, what did it do in the beginning? Did a skunk send off perfume before the fall? Did monkeys come over and massage your shoulders before the fall? And the thought's astounding what could have happened before the fall. But now, on the other hand, oh, that God guy, oh, that God guy, he's keeping you from something. Well, we can eat of everything, but we can't touch that. And already the enemy, he's played his little test and he's gone, ooh, you failed. You kind of you got it, but you kind of got What's evident is you have secondhand knowledge. Now, here's the good news, beloved. There's nobody in this room that has to walk around with secondhand knowledge. And that's the danger, by the way, of just listening to me. Dare I say that? It talks about was newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word. I mean, imagine, and I'm not going to try to get too gross, Although, you know me, I get the, the, limits, the limits small. Um, imagine a mom that's like, well, maybe the baby won't like my mother's milk. Maybe let me add a little bit of something to it to make it a little bit better. The baby sleeps too much. Let's put a little coffee in there. You know? Or you know what? Hey, man, we're like in a Mexican community and we don't really... The baby needs to start getting a tolerance for something spicy. So let's put a little bit of habanero or you know, jalapeno in the mother's milk. And here you go, baby. It's like, look at pure milk of the word, baby. Pure milk. It's like if you just get me what, what I give you. And, and, and I love what I get to do. You know that. But if you just get what I get, you, then you're going to go, well, Pastor Tony says, never quote me to the enemy. Quote the word... I mean, I'd love to think the enemy would be like, oh yeah, that guy again. But wouldn't it be nice if you're like, well, that guy told me to read the Bible and the Bible says this because all I'm, all, if you're going to bring me into it, to be honest, you're going to keep the door open long enough to converse with them. Versus a scripture that goes, here's the scripture, and you close the door. Lock it and you say you're done. And if he knocks again, you say, hold on, let me go get the landlord. Jesus, this is not at the door. It's yours. God said, oh no, God. So look at, notice this statement. She says, no, we can't touch it or we're going to die. And notice his statement in verse 4. The serpent says to the woman, you shall not surely die. Do you notice that statement? Because it's exactly the words, mutamut, that God said to Adam, and the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Mutamut. It appears to me that the enemy was around enough to recognize that was exactly what the enemy said to, or what the, the Lord, I'm sorry, said to Adam. And now the enemy is quoting it, you shall not surely die. Now that's not what Eve says. She says, if we touch it, we'll die. He goes, oh, that surely die statement that God really made to Adam? No, 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 he's lying. And I start realizing why he's saying this. So tactic number four, he's telling you that God's lying to you. Why would God lie to me? What all he's saying is this, that God's word, it doesn't, listen, God's word doesn't say what you think it says. Well, in the moment, and hear me out, the moment some guy opens up the scripture with you and says, I know that it says, it looks like it says that jumping off a cliff will kill you. But what God really means by that is jumping off a cliff will make you alive. Where they flip it around, and I've watched people do this. Well, see, the moment you start saying that God's word isn't the authority, then you become the authority. Think about that. You become the person that everyone has to hinge their life off of your words, not off of God's word. 
Do you realize how ridiculous of a thought that is? That's the way to create a cult. Well, you know, I know what the Bible says. For instance, David Koresh, the guy from Waco, Texas, comes in and says, I am the sinful Messiah. Whoa, that should be my first clue. This guy's a lunatic. Sinful Messiah. Strange, tempted in every way, yet without sin. That's what Scripture says. Well, that was the last guy. I'm the new guy. Oh, yeah, Scripture talks about him too. Many false Christs will appear after me. Okay, well, that kind of gets me to where I should be with the guy. And so then everyone's like, well, you know, we just want to believe him. Well, he becomes the authority. What he says becomes the, becomes the Word of God. Now think about that. Now back in our text here, this is what he says in verse 5. Oh, God's lying to you. See, and what he's trying to do, now check this out, is what he's trying to do is trying to tell you God's motive. And I guarantee you the enemy's going to do this with you. See, God knows, and notice again, there's no Lord God in this. God knows on the day that you'll eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And therefore, you'll be like him. And you'll know good and evil. Now, here's the idea. The tactic is simple. God is keeping you ignorant. That's what he's saying. God is intentionally and purposely keeping you ignorant. Your eyes are closed right now. If you eat of this, your eyes will be open. God is purposely not allowing you to see something. And by the way, that's not a lie. The lie is in the intent. Are there things that I don't want my children to see? To be honest, are there things I don't want you to see? Absolutely. There are things I would love for you not to see. Are there, now let me ask you, is there anyone in this room that honestly can say that everything they've ever seen in their life, there's nothing in their life that they... Did, that, let me say this in a way it's clear. That we have no regret for everything we've ever seen. And I think, is there anyone that if God were to say, I would love to remove at your discretion certain images or scenes that you've watched in your life, observed or partaken in? Is there anyone that would say, no, thanks, actually, everything I have is cool. I actually love reviewing everything that I've ever seen. And I think about back when I was a teenager, there was a little crazy guy we called, it was one of the cavemen guys. I mean, he he was covered in hair, tiny little guy, lunatic, big acid head. Um, He was just really big in hallucinogenics. Mike is his name. And he was just this, he was the first guy that did, no matter what it is, if you were like, I dare you, he would do it. That's just the way it is. It doesn't matter what it was. And, um, I mean, it really, there was no holes barred with Mike. And I just remember Mike was just, he was just always lunatic, always the, the guy that was full on. And there was always that challenge between the two of us who was going to be a little bit crazier. He was the first one to do it. I usually just tried to do it bigger. Um, and I remember once we were near this particular swollen river. And this particular swollen river was just, it was obviously very dangerous. And um, we both were kind of prided ourselves on being strong enough to try to do, to handle whatever would come by. And I remember Mike jumping in before even anyone dared him because they were just like, man, that's who wants to go near that river? And Mike's like, well, I do that. And he jumped in. And as Mike jumped in, it was pretty evident that the undertow was right away. I mean, it, there wasn't an instant before the undertow didn't start sucking him down. So, as that's, which happens, of course, with swollen rivers. So you, I went and immediately went and hacked off a tree, pulled it off a tree, a branch. As I pulled off this branch, yeah, I see what I mean. I just Wah! now, and I pulled off this branch and I threw it into the river right away, holding on to it. And I said, "Mike, grab it, grab it, Mike, grab it." And Mike grabbed the branch because he knew he was dying if he didn't. And I reached out my hand and he grabbed my hand. And as he grabbed my hand, he started hallucinating. 
As he started to hallucinate, he looked at my hand and he said, a snake, a snake, a snake. And he let go of my hand, just looked me straight in the face, and it was the last time I ever saw Mike alive again. Now, if there's any way in the world I could remove that image from my sight, I would do it. And you walk around and you think, I, I killed him. Now, I didn't give him the drugs. I didn't stop him either, and I could have. But that wasn't where we were in society. Mike was the guy that would do more than, he, than anyone, tried harder than anyone. That was just what Mike did. I realized that's an image I would love to have never seen. There are images I've seen on movies that I'm like, wow, who thought of that? And then you're like, man, I wish I never saw that. Do you know what I'm saying? Especially back in those horror movie days. Now, maybe you're still into those kind of things. I'm not. But I remember those days when I watched them just on a dare as well. And I'd like walk out of there thinking, man, that just tweaked me. And I could close my eyes and still see some of that stuff. I can think of those moments, the fights that I'd been in, and how I'd step away from that fight, hands covered in blood, looking at some person that was clearly just not well, and thinking, oh my, what have I done? And those are images that I, and God's like, look, I'd love for you not to be a part of that. I'd love you not. And the enemy's like, well, God's keeping you from something that he has that you don't. And the answer is yes, you're right, he is. He's not keeping you from any good. You already had the good. He's keeping you from the evil. That's the part he's keeping you from. The issue is, does he have right as Lord God to decipher what is evil and what's not? He created you as God. Lord, he has the right to dictate it to you. But God, I don't understand why this is bad. God says, you don't have to understand why this is bad. Trust me. That's faith. When God told... The Israelis back in the desert, I don't want you eating shellfish. A bit of a strange comment since they're in the desert when he tells them that. And you realize that the things that those particular mollusks contained even back then, or pork when poorly cooked, and all the things that come from that, botulism and otherwise, God knew it. And he had strange things that people were like, what? Even in this country, when the bubonic plague hit, the only people that weren't dying were Jewish people. Because in the Bible, it said something really strange. It says, when you touch a dead person, you have to take a bath. Now, around here, you took a bath maybe once a year during the bubonic plague season. And understand, that was a strange thing. That's one of the reasons why. And it just occurred to me when my wife and daughter went to bath. That was why people got better in bath. Because one of the things you did in bath was took one. You know, you're like, wow, I feel so much better. Yeah, and probably lighter because three to five pounds of dirt are off of you. <laughs> wow, I feel so much healthier. Strange as that is, without living organisms that were now the size of your organs dwelling on top of you. And I realized that God's like, no, look, at you don't have to understand why. Because as a matter of fact, in Leviticus, when he tells him that, he says, I'm the Lord. That's it. In the end of it all, before you want to argue with me on why do you have to take a bath? It's like, look, I'm the Lord. That's just all there is to it. Now, in our text here, the enemy says, look, the Lord's keeping you. God, I'm sorry, no Lord in this. The God, God is keeping you from this. He knows on the day you eat of this, you're going to get something he has that he's keeping from you. And I start to realize, well, that makes perfect sense because in Isaiah 14, God has something that the devil wants, but he won't give him either. And that's his glory. The enemy is like, I will sit upon the, the hill of the north, upon the, the sides of the, you know, he's like, I'm going to sit upon the, the northern side where all the congregation rests upon it. That's where I want. God's like, I'm not going to share that with you. You wouldn't use it for anything good anyways. And I'm not going to share it with anyone. God bless you guys. They're on their way to an audition. 
And in this, beloved, hear me out. In this, the enemy is like, God's keeping this from you. In the end of it all, again, you're already in conversation when that's the problem. They're like, well, yeah, God is keeping this from me. And to be honest, yes, he is. Wait a minute, is God trying to brainwash you? I sure hope so, because there's a lot in my brain that could use an awful lot of washing. I'm okay with that. Does God want you to be ignorant of everything? No. He already gave me all kinds of abundance of good. Paul would say, by the way, I would love you to be, and I'm going to put it in a rough paraphrase, I would love for you to be PhDs in what is good, but as far as that which is evil, I'd rather you be babes. Well, wait a minute. Are you telling that God wants to shelter you? Yes, of course he wants to shelter you. He doesn't want you to have to walk around the rest of your life with regret. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Which, by the way, isn't a lie. You will. I start going, well, wait a minute. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was three things, it was good for food, pleasant to the eyes, and the tree desirable to make one wise. Look back at Genesis 2.9 for a second. Out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that was pleasant to the sight and good for food. Did you, read this? Did you recognize two of the three things were already there? If, if what you were looking for was something that was good for food, you could get it with any tree in the garden. If what you could look for is anything that was beautiful, that was good with any other tree of the garden. That changes here. Well, wait a minute. Desirable to make one wise. I start to realize not everything that's packaged as wisdom is actually good. Did you notice that? This kind of wisdom is not the kind of wisdom God wants. And by the way, we'll talk in the book of James, he'll talk about two different kinds of wisdom, worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. There's clearly worldly wisdom. That God's like, I don't want you to have a PhD in that kind of wisdom or philosophy. Matter of fact, he'll warn us, be careful and be weary of those things that are falsely called knowledge or philosophy or wisdom or science. Temptation. Here's the temptation. Before this point, Anything around here is beautiful. You're going to notice that. Anything around here is good for food. But you realize what God has done, and here's the simple theme over all this temptation is, God's not allowing you to be first. That's the problem. Here's, that's where the big lie is. You see, the reason why God's keeping this from you is because he's putting you first. That's the point of it. I'm putting you first, so I'm not going to let you partake of this, or at least I'm going to make sure that you know that this is not to be partaken of. Because you're more important. My life's going to be about trying to keep you from these things. And the enemy says, well, God's keeping you from it because he's making himself more important than you. He's not allowing you to be first. And you need to put you first. You need to step it up. If you put you first, that's a different story. But if you put you first, then you can be wise here. God's keeping you from putting you first. You read of this tree, that's good enough. And you watch what will happen. You'll make you first. And you know what? That's exactly what is going to happen. And everything changes. And the reason is from this point on, I become the most important thing in my life. Eve becomes the most important thing in her life. Adam becomes the most important thing in his life. And I think, I realize that's why this becomes so profound. And that's where death comes in. The moment I ate of this, God stopped being the most important thing in my life. I became the most important thing. And everything now gets viewed through the jaded lens of my own self. How horribly wicked is that? Follow this with me. Verse 7. So she gave to her husband, by the way, in the end of verse 6. She gave to her husband and ate also. So she takes and eats and then gives to her husband. So there he is. And he watched this whole thing, never interjected, never stopped in having the first-hand word of God. 
knowing what God had clearly said, but doesn't step in when God said, you're supposed to guard, and he never guards. He's supposed to be tilling. And by the way, if he was actually exploring the wonders of the garden, he wouldn't be at this tree in the first place to have this. If you're busy exploring the wonders of God's goodness, you won't have time for this tree. The easiest way to push a car in reverse was to keep it in neutral. The hardest way to stop a car or to pull it in reverse is to keep it going forward. So, notice verse 7, the first product or result of us biting into death, making us number one. The eyes of both of them were open, and they both knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Now, don't miss this. You tend to think, well, how in the world did they not know this? Well, here's the point. The moment that I made me first, I became keenly aware of me. Think about it. I mean, I mean, of all the things that they could imagine, that they could have come to conclude after they bit into this thing, you think, they all of a sudden realized that they had sinned. They realized that they had offended God. They realized that they had, t- that they had experienced or that God said death would have come. I mean, all the things you could have come to, and none of those are written here. And so the moment they fitted this, the first thing that they became aware of was themselves. So they got him bit into this, and he goes, whoa. Um, all of a sudden, they just started to see me. And I realized, oh, this isn't good. I better cover me up. Eve took a bite of this thing, and she's like, oh, wow, look at me. I mean, before that point, all I had my eyes on was the Lord, was the garden, and was this beautiful woman in front of me. It was everything. I didn't look at me. Why did I need to look at me? God had me covered. So I'm looking and going, wow, look at this amazing garden. And God, look at you, amazing God, Lord God. And wow, look at that creation. Woo-hoo! And now all of a sudden it's like, whoa, look at me. Do you realize that's what happens? This is what God says I wanted to keep you from. What I wanted to keep you from was that everything now has to be looked at through you. How are you going to see me now? How is the world going to see me? When I interact, what about me? How do I look? How's my teeth? How's my hair? Am I looking weird? Am I saying weird things? Am I coming off weird? Everything is now through the jaded lens of me. Before that, all I, I just looked at you and I went, how can I serve you? How do I bless you? Not, how do I bless you in a way so that you like me? How do I serve you in a way so you think I'm cool? All of that happened in this one brief moment and the entire world changed. And I went, whoa, we need to, I, and it, I, I, need to, I need to cover me up. And I realized that's the product of this, is now all of a sudden they have this natural need to hide. To hide this thing. To hide me. I didn't even think about me before this point. Now I have to hide me. Now it is a bit humorous. Of all the things he could have picked, fig leaves are one of the itchiest leaves you could find. I find that a bit funny. Something a bit chafing. There are all certainly big leaves out there they could have grabbed. They could have grabbed banana leaves or whatever. Oh no, they grabbed fig leaves. How they're sewing, I have no idea. All I know is they get these things and they put them together and I imagine them going, oh, this is not comfortable. And I realize, you know what, but then now I'm thinking about me. And notice, by the way, how everything starts to change in verse 8. Notice the title that God gives himself. So the result, everything is about me being number one now. I am the one who's trying to cover this up. And then it says in verse 8, Now they heard the sound of, and what's his title now? Lord God. Did you notice that? Because now we're out of the conversation with the enemy. What that tells me is the Lord God never ceased to be the Lord God in all of this. The enemy pulled me out of that thought, that concept, put me into this God thought, just God, just Creator, do your own thing. But the Lord God never stopped being the Lord God and He comes back walking in the cool of the garden like He always seems to. And it says that He was walking in the cool of the day and Adam and his wife 
hid themselves. And by the way, here's my second big result. The first one was, again, that I become very keenly aware of me. I become very keenly aware. Everything started to view through me. The second thing is separation. Separation. Now notice that God doesn't separate himself from man here. Man separated himself from God. Did you see that? I find that fantastic. And in all of the worst of ways. And I realized this is why we hate death. God said on the day that you eat of this, you shall die. The reason we hate death is because we, lo- we lost our relationship. I mean, I can't talk. I can't converse anymore. I can't hang out. We can't do things like we used to. I can't plan for you anymore. That hurts. And God says, that's exactly our point here. And God's walking to hang out with Adam and Eve. He's walking. I mean, no, God doesn't have to grow legs. I mean, this is God we're talking about. The Lord God has put himself in a position where he can be seen, touched, experienced. And as he's walking... Not just hovering or misting or orbiting or whatever, but he's walking in the cool of the garden and Adam and Eve are hiding. Hiding. You watch somebody, the first time they dive into a sin, they feel like they have to cover it up. Then it starts becoming a lifestyle and now it's something they have to just hide. And ultimately you're going to get to that point where you kind of... You're like, man, I'm going I'm to call you to the light on this thing. And they're like, hey, 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 I'm busy hiding this thing. Don't you dare pull this out to light. And it's like, hey, that's exactly what happens here. So they hid themselves. And then I think, how utterly sad, beloved. Because it says that they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Did you notice that? Among the trees of the garden. This was God's bouquet. Imagine God grew this beautiful bouquet to say, I I love you. This is for you. And now Adam and Eve are hiding behind this thing that was a token of God's love for them, a token of his pleasure with them, and they're hiding from God, from his presence. It's the very thing that God created for them to enjoy. I think of all the things that God created for us to enjoy that now have become something that people hide behind. So then the Lord God, verse 9, and again, by the way, he'll only be called the Lord God through the rest of the chapter, as you might imagine. That the Lord God called out to Adam and he said to him, where are you? Now this isn't because God doesn't know where Adam is, he's the Lord God. It's because Adam doesn't know where he is. And I realized something. When I'm busy running and hiding from God's presence, God is still in hot pursuit. I mean, this is the weirdest game of hide and seek in the world. I'm running from the very thing that gave me life. I'm running from the one who created everything beautiful for me to enjoy. I'm hiding from the one who gave me everything in abundance for my pleasure. And I'm hiding from him. And God's the one's going, hey, do you have any clue where you are right now? Do you realize you're hiding from me? Do you realize that? You're hiding from me. You find that strange? I do. Where are you? Verse 10. So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid. The third product is fear. Fear didn't exist before this point. Do you know where fear came from? Putting me first. That's where fear came from. The moment I put me first, I hide. I run from God's presence. The moment that I put me first, I'm afraid. Fear is the result of putting me first. What if? It tells us that perfect love will cast out fear because fear involves torment. What if? What if this thing affects me? What if this thing hurts me? What if this thing? It's all still me first. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Because I'm so aware of myself now, I hid myself. So he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree in which I commanded that you should not eat? 
And that tells me something, that God tells us that that you first paradigm is the result of disobedience. Now that you must know evil for you to put you first like that. See, before the point, God's like, I put you first. You put me first, I put you first. That was a great relationship. Now I put you first and you put you first. That obviously tells me you've now bitten into something that hurts you. You've bitten into the thing that destroys you. You've bitten into the thing that tears you down. That's evident because the product of it is you made you first. You'd never run from me like this before. That's not the way this works. The result for. Well, then he said, well, the, and he says, notice, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree in which I commanded you that you should not eat? And he says, well, the woman you gave me, and I've got to tell you, in the first two years of my marriage were not easy years between my wife and I, primarily because I put me first, she put her first, and I, we masked it as if we were being selfless, but it was still for selfish motives. And then in the, all of that, I'm going before God, and God took me to this verse, and I went, BAM! How do you feel about that? And I realized that's exactly what I needed because what he said is when you blame her, you're blaming me. I gave her to you. And that's exactly what Adam does here. He goes, look it, it's the woman, but you gave her to me. Hey, you gave her me. You're the one who did this. God goes, you really want to blame me for this? A moment ago, you were celebrating her. And now you're angry at me because of what? You're blaming me? And I realized this is exactly the world we live in. Nobody owns up anymore to their sin. They're like, well, that was because I was a kid and this happened. And that was because my schooling was this way or because I'm an underclass person or I don't make enough money. If I was in a more richer environment or my neighborhood, or not that those things don't play into it, but the end of it all is own up to it enough to say, you know what, let's all agree this is wrong because it's the one thing nobody's saying. No one's saying, you know what, I'll agree with you, this is wrong. Regardless of how I got here, this is a bad place to be. Instead of, I'm just a helpless, helpless victim and I'm just going to be here for the rest of my life, deal with it. That's just who I am. How about I'd rather be different? I don't like who I am. I'd like that to change. Adam, what about you, man? He's like, you know what? It's, you did it, man. You gave it to me. Okay, let's go to the woman. Then the Lord God, notice again, Lord God, Lord God said to the woman, what's this that you've done? The woman said, well, serpent deceived me and I ate. Now that's true, by the way. According to 1 Timothy, it tells us that the woman was genuinely deceived. She genuinely believed him. And the reason I believe she genuinely believed him is because her husband never stepped in in the first place to say, no, wait a minute, let me tell you what God really said. I know this guy. I tell you, when he made me, I was dust. And he breathed life into me and it'd be this beautiful stuff. And then he made you. What part of this is God being the party pooper? No part of that does Adam speak. And he had first-hand knowledge of all of that. The woman was totally, totally deceived. But she still goes, it was him. And you realize the product, the product of it is the blame game. So as a result of that, notice God never enters into conversation with the enemy. Did you notice that? He doesn't ask the enemy, what have you done? He asks the man, he asks the woman, but God does not converse. He only curses the, the serpent. He's like, well, when he gets to him, he's like, well, I'm not even talking to you, which I learned from that. He says, oh, here's the curse. And this is what we bring it around to the end of this. The curse is threefold. For the serpent... For the, for the man and for the woman. And then look at this with me. He says, first of all, to the serpent, Because you have done this, and you are cursed more than all the cattle, more than every beast of the field, on the belly you shall go, you shall eat dust all the days of your life, and I'll put enmity between, between you and, your, and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He'll bruise your head, he'll bruise his heel. Same word, by the way. So when, and then I've, you know, you'll bruise and he's going to crush. Well, this, it does mean crush, but it's crush in both cases. And the idea is simple. You're going to, your whole thing now is you're going to be the lowest thing. You wanted to be exalted to be the highest thing. You're going to be the lowest thing now. 
And as you're going to be the lowest thing, you're going to always try to stop someone's walk. But ultimately, the best you're going to do is that, is to nip at someone's heel. On the other side of it, the seed of this woman is going to, it will be able to crush your head and all your authority that comes with it. And already of our first beautiful promise about who the Messiah must be, he must be somebody that comes from the woman and somebody that's going to destroy everything that the serpent did. I think that's interesting because everything else makes perfect sense on this. Because the idea of it is, ultimately, man now is in a state that God doesn't want him in. He's in a state where he's very keenly aware now of himself being first. And he's keenly aware of this harm, this evil that he's now partaken in. He doesn't want you in there. And so with that, he says, okay, look, at to the serpent, your days are numbered. You're going to be the lowest thing here, and you're, there's a, and you're done. There's a day this whole thing's going to be over with you. And then I look at the woman, verse 16. And by the way, this whole thing about her, you know, her seed and his seed, I mean, seed's a weird thing because that something comes from a man instead of a woman. We can look at all of that stuff, but people build crazy stuff. What will be interesting is, ultimately, the whole world will be governed by two groups of people. There'll be those under the governance of the living God and those under the governance of the enemy. And that's what God even tells us here, that the whole world's going to be split into two because of this act. There'll be those that ultimately seek to go back to this place where God of intimacy with God and those that don't. This isn't the serpent, and pardon me for just being bold and, and blunt here, this isn't the serpent having sex with people so that they can be... The whole idea of it, you realize, is there are going to be a whole generation of people called sons of God and there'll be a whole generation of people called the sons of the enemy. Or, and you realize the idea is this isn't God having babies. The idea is really simple. There's some people over the governance of the living God and some that are going to be in the governance of the enemy. The next chapter, we have Cain and Abel. Do you get it? By the way, they appear and we'll get there next week, God willing, to have to be twins. It tells us that she conceived and bore and then bore. It doesn't say she conceived and bore and conceived and bore, if that makes sense. So she conceived, she got pregnant and had a baby and then had a second baby. That's the way that works. And by the way, for it's worth the first one, we'll find the first one she names this beautiful thing and the second one, Abel, just means like nothingness. And how'd you like to have that name as a kid? And you realize, it's like, well, you have even with those two kids, is you have one that's going to be under the governance of the living God and one that's going to be under the governance of the enemy. Then what do you have? Think about all these different children throughout time. We had Esau and Jacob and how that's the same concept. And you realize the whole idea when we get to the flood is that the enemy and those that are under the governance of him will have all the power and influence as where those that were under the living God become decreasing and now to the point of relatively impotent. God's like, well, this isn't going to happen this way. Because I want to warn you, the entire world's going to be split in two because of this act. And now there's going to be sides. You're either going to live under the dominion of the living God in obedience, which is clearly what you guys didn't do here, or you're going to be living under the governance of the enemy who's going to live to, do, to tell you these same lies over and over and over again. And you'll live that way. So this is the woman. I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. Don't miss that. Before this point, Sorrow, well, now it's infinitely multiplied. Sorrow is going to be a part of your life now. But he says, and I'll greatly multiply your conception, which means you'll gestate longer. It'll take something. You're now going to have babies. It's interesting because even the way you have babies is part of the curse. I don't know how you could have had them before this, but the bottom line is, this is going to be a painful act. And that's the whole idea of it. For you to have babies is going to be painful. And it says, in pain you'll bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband. He will rule over you. Two things here that are the, basically the emblems of this curse for the woman. The most fundamental is painful childbirth. For what it's worth, well, let me get to this in a second. The idea of it is, 
For you to have a baby, it's going to cause you pain. The other thing he says, though, is your desire will be for your husband, but he must rule over you. Now, it sounds beautiful as a man, because my first place that I want to go with it is your desire will be for your husband. In other words, you'll get married and your wife will look and go, Woo! And because your desire will be for your husband, there's a problem with the words tishacha. And the same word is used in chapter 4, verse 7, when God says to Cain, sin's desire is for you, but you must rule it. Funny, in both cases, did you notice the two things stated? Something has a desire, but you're going to have to rule it. You have a desire for your husband, but he's going to have to rule you. Did you get it? This to a desire doesn't mean you're going to look at him and just want to be intimate with him. It means you're going to desire to control him. You'll have a desire to control your husband, but he's going to have to rule you. Which, by the way, sounds like a double curse, in my opinion. Um, Sin's desire is to control you. You're going to have to master it. Did you get that? Now, for what it's worth, it doesn't. I don't have to. We don't have a lot of time to develop. We have a few minutes left. But consider this: all you have to do is watch your mom and dad drive down the street and see who's behind the wheel and who's next. All right, it's really simple. When the, when the wife's driving, it doesn't matter where she goes. The husband can make some kind of snide comment, like just try to keep off the sidewalk next time, you know that kind of thing. But if the man's driving, this sounds horribly sexist, but decide on your own. All of a sudden, the wife's got this imaginary brake holding up the roof and going. It's amazing how often that happens. I have a friend who teaches psychology and psychiatry at the UCLA, and when he does, I ask him, what percentage of the people treated that you know of personally are treated for control disorders are women? 98.7%. And he goes, that's the most conservative estimate. That's the most conservative estimate I can give you. I believe it's even more than that, but that I could comfortably say without any... Well, think about that. Now, I'm not telling you that that's me just being sexist. I'm telling you that's what Scripture says here. As I know, understand, here's the idea. God created you to help. Take a helper and tweak them now and unsave that. And what do you have? Somebody that helps by controlling. Because built within you is the desire to help. But within the desire to help, you enter into a situation, you see how you can interject yourself to bolster, not control. But you unsave that, you take that and follow the world around you, and that which is the desire to help now becomes a desire to control. It's just that simple. Well, now look at the man, and you go think, well, man, I got the raw end of the deal. Well, now take a look at the man, verse 17. To Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife. Notice he says, you've heeded instead of leaded. Well, that's lead, but it rhymed. Um, and even of the tree which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake, and toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth from you. And it says, and you shall eat of the herb of the field, the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread, till you return, for out of it you were taken, dust you are, dust you will return. And I think about this and I think, well, wait a minute. So the two symbols of a fallen world for man and woman are a painful childbirth and thorns. I find that really interesting. Because according to Scripture, those are the two emblems of the two comings of Christ. Are you aware of that? When I think about the second coming of Christ, it says that when the Lord comes back, it will be like a woman in childbirth. It tells us in in Romans that all creation mourns or groans like a woman in childbirth, desiring to be liberated. And God's like, look it, I'm going to wrap this whole thing up when I come back a second time. And I realize the whole curse is going to be destroyed. That's what Jesus came to do, right? 
So I understand the whole idea that God set it up with childbirth because that's the way this whole thing closes. He goes, woman on this side, that's what's happening. Well, the childbirth, the whole thing is going to happen over here, but in between is the thorns. And it's interesting because when I started inv- when I started investigating every place where thorns is in Scripture, I found something really interesting when I got to the book of Judges with Gideon. Gideon went to muster up his army to go and fight against these particular people. And as he does, there was a whole group of people, Sukkot, who did not join him. And he says, I'll tell you what. They said, you're not going to be able to take them on. You're going to lose. And he says, I'll tell you what. I'm going to take these thorns and I'm going to rake them across your back because when I win this battle, if I win this battle, I'm going to take this thing and I'm going to take you guys. I'm going to rip the skin off the back of your flesh with these thorns. I think that's interesting because there was a proud statement made by Gideon and all of that. And that proud statement says, you know what? If you're not going to help me, if you're not going to jump into this battle, like you belong to jump into this battle, but if you're not going to go into this battle with me, I'm going to rip the skin off your back. That's what you deserve for not stepping in when you should. Hmm. And if my Jesus was going to take the sins of every one of us, and one of the sins is me not stepping in when I should have jumped into the battle, to preach the gospel when I should have, but I stayed silently back, when I didn't step in, well, if I actually take what I, to, to heart what Gideon is saying, well, then I deserve to have the skin ripped off my back. Should it be a surprise to me that Jesus took the whipping off the skin off of his own back? It was my sin that he paid for because I, was the one, I haven't jumped to the battle every time I should have. Does that make sense? But then I think, well, it makes perfect sense to me why in John 19 then that the soldiers make a crown of thorns and they place it upon his head. Because the whole idea of it is my king took the curse of mankind and he died and he left it there. They could have made the crown out of anything, but they made it out of thorns. And God willing, one of these days, I even have those t- that same tree. That Well, not the exact same tree. That's not getting weird. But that particular br- breed that's been there for the 2,000 years, I've taken some of it back with me from Israel. I'll show you what those thorns look like. It's appalling. And I think, wow, this is what Jesus did because to pay for these thorns right here, he was going to take it to the cross by getting his own skin ripped off his own back and die with those thorns upon his head. I think, what did he do? Why the thorn, the crown of thorns? Because he paid for the curse that was that came right here. Doesn't that make sense? Closing this up. Thank you for letting me go along. Well, what does that mean? You guys just didn't run out of here screaming. Verse 21. Now at verse 20, so he calls his wife Eve. Chava, which means life giver, because he now knows that she's going to be the one through whom life is going to come. From that day, we've always looked for the Messiah to come through a woman, unless you're Druze. And Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics. Now the result of this is God's going to need to cover you with new flesh. And I think it's interesting because in order for me to actually have any form of right existence, I'm going to have to be recovered. And it's funny because I already had a covering of flesh already, but this flesh is defective. And God says that's interesting because according to the New Testament, I'm going to need to be clothed in Christ. Not just clothed like inside, though Jesus lives inside, but I'm going to be clothed with him on the outside just like this, only better. And then it says, and I don't know if you noticed this, verse 22, the Lord God said, again, notice Lord God, behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. So now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, the Lord God sent him out of the garden to till the ground from which he was taken. Now, this tells me, it's really simple, God does not want me spending eternity in this state. He doesn't want me to know evil, pain, suffering eternally. God doesn't want, no, it doesn't just say that he's experienced, it says he, you know this now. You know evil now. You know pain. You know suffering now. And if you know suffering now, I don't want you to live eternally knowing, knowing pain. 
And what's beautiful is there is going to be a day when we actually stand before the Lord and it tells us he will remove from us our even consciousness of evil and sin that it will never come to mind again. And the idea is, I don't want you living eternally like this because this state separates. This is the state where you ran from me. This is the state where you hid from me. This is the state where you try to cover it up and I don't want us living eternally like that. I want us back to that place where you thought of me first and I thought of you first, where there was nothing in between us. And God says, I'll do whatever it takes for that. And God says, well, if that's the case, then I'm going to have to die to do this. But did you notice in all of this, it says that he put man in the, out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken? Well, where was he taken? From some place where there was dust and he formed it? Where Adam first saw life and he first saw God and he first watched God make that garden and he brought him right back to that same place. He's like, do you remember this place? This is where you first had life. This is where it was just you and me. Where I breathed life into you. Where you watched me make that beautiful garden and then I put you in it. Do you remember when we'd walk hand in hand and I showed you a new tree and we grew it and then I grew it and then I said, partake of this. Remember that? And I realized the whole thing from this point in is I'm like, my whole body aches and I go, how can I get back to that? That's where we were intimate. That's where we were close. And God says, but you can't have that tree of life right now. You can't have that tree of life because if you ate of that now, you'd stay in this state and I can't have you in this state that way for eternity. I don't want you living like that. That person lives in hell. I find it interesting for what it's worth that when I look at the term tree of life throughout scripture from this point on, there'll be several times we'll read a tree of life. Wisdom or righteousness is a tree of life. A word fitly spoken, a tree of life. But the only time I get to the tree of life is in the book of Revelation chapter 22. After God pays for all the curse, now the woman has given birth. And the earth now is redeemed from all of its curse. God comes over, sets up shop at this point. There's a new heavens and a new earth. And it says that the Lord God will dwell with His people again. And in the midst of it all is the tree of life. And from this point throughout the entire book up through the end of Genesis, and that's the last chapter of Genesis, you realize all I want is to get back to that tree. And God says, you will. The last chapter, that's exactly where we're going to be. In between, we'll be figuring it out, you figuring it out through all of this, walking through how you want to choose which side. Do you want to walk towards that? Or do you want to walk towards where you came from here, back the dust you came? Because the entire thing revolves around that now. We're going to end up in the end of this book where we began intimate like this. But it's your choice. And I realize in verses 23 and 24, so we can pray, that he put a notice that says to till the ground from which he was taken. That's the word of Ad. And then he drove out the man and we placed cherubim on the east side of the garden of Eden. Remember the garden of pleasure. And a flaming sword which went each way to guard Shemar the way of the tree of life. And I realized, remember when he put Adam in that garden to, to work it and to keep it? Did you notice those two words were used in those last two verses? Odd, working before this point, was them actually exploring together. Now working is actually trying to make this thing grow so he could live. But the saddest part about it was, before this point, God put Adam in the, in the garden to guard it. Now he has to put a sword there to guard the garden from Adam. Before this point, you were there to protect it. Now it's being protected from you. Because you're the one that's actually wanting to go back to that, and you can't do it that way. And if you're going to do it this way, you're going to get cut up to pieces. And you're like, well, then how do I get this right? Well, that's quite simple. Someone else is going to have to get cut for you. 
Someone else is going to have to be pierced for you. Someone else is going to have to take those thorns. And that's the whole story of Jesus. And we've gotten to chapter 3 and God says, now that you've fallen, no, that's where this goes. Because the entire book revolves around the fact that all of this is going to end up at a cross. A cross where God says, I'm paying it because I don't want you to. I don't want you to spend eternity. If I don't do this, if I don't do this, you will spend eternity in your state. And I'm not going to let that happen. Beloved, as we go to prayer, have you realized the depth of this moment? Because the whole point of it is, and this isn't this what we deal with for the rest of our lives, is how to put us second or last, get us in the back of the line instead of the front. Because we're raised under the, it tells us the world's under the sway of the evil one. That's the point of this. And yet God says, look at beloved, I don't want you first. I've made you first, so you don't have to make you first. And his Holy Spirit says, I can put you at the back of the line and you can be happy there. Because I'm taking care of you. Beloved, look at Jesus took all of this horrible torture so that you don't have to. To, 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 to experience the torture being separated from the living God because it's what we earned. We ran and hid. Jesus chose it so we could be reconciled. As we pray, beloved, can we pray a prayer of thanks that, this, that though this is what we would have done and don't blame Adam and Eve, we would have done it too. The issue isn't whether we would have done it. The issue is that God did what He did. Will you pray with me? God, I thank You. I know that we've gone quite long today, but Lord, I thank You so much for what You've done in this time. I thank You, Lord, for this amazing text and how You've walked us through, Lord. You've walked us through this intense chapter where we've watched man choose death, hiding from You, separate from You, fearful now and hiding and running things that we would never have done before, but that's part of death. And we don't want to live in that death anymore. God, we don't want to put us first. We recognize, Lord, though the enemy is seeking to put us first, so in, or at least seeking to make us believe that we could put ourselves first. But in that, what we do is we put you last. But Lord Jesus, you came and you took the, the torture of the thorns and the ripping of the skin off your back, all because I deserve it. And I want to thank you, God, that you would take that pain, that suffering, that torture, because you don't want me to live eternally in that state of, of knowledge of sin and of evil and of, of pain and of suffering. And now, God, you want me to be back in that place of being intimate with you. Thank you that the cross busts down those walls. You as the living word, the very sword of the Spirit, that if I really want to get back there, I have to go through that sword. And Jesus, you are the only way to the Father. You are that flaming sword. In between cherubim, in between angels. And I think, Lord God, of how your ark, there was a, a cherub on the one side and a cherub on the other, and in between was the mercy seat, a bloody seat where you live, God. I think about it, the tomb where Mary saw one angel at the foot, one angel at the head, and a bloody seat in between at the empty tomb where you once were. I think how amazing it is, Lord God, how amazing it is that I could go through that mercy seat, that I could go through that living sword, that flaming sword, Jesus, that I could go through you. And in doing so, all my sins would be burned away it's interesting, Lord, how you tell us about the thorns that they would be burned away. And all of my thorns would be burned away at that flaming sword. And that all of my sin be cut from me completely. And that I could be given life. So again, we openly declare, Jesus, you as our sacrifice. 
And I understand that nobody could come to the Father except through you, Jesus. And so I come through you, confessing you as my Savior by dying on the cross to pay for my sins and raising again to offer me the new life, a life where I can be intimate with you again. But I don't want to just make you God. I want to make you Lord of my life. Where you have the right to guide and lead me and dictate as you so desire for my benefit. I know you do that for me, to shelter me from the things that I would regret otherwise. So I say yes to you, Lord, and just say thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for dying and raising for me. That was your choice and you made it. Thank you. That we could live life now free, truly free, free to love you and to worship you and to celebrate you. Deafen our ears to the enemy. Give us no interest at all in conversing with him whatsoever. And make us first-hand observers and understanders of your word so that when the enemy comes, we don't quote second-hand information, but we go straight to your word. We, we use that which shuts the conversation down and we move on. And don't allow us to be deceived ever again. So we commit ourselves to you. Father, we are yours. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, our Redeemer, our Ransom our Lord. Amen.